I think any successful charity has a very clear mission statement, which says, this is the problem that exists. This is who we are. And this is what we are doing to solve that problem. So we're going to start back with step one to reassess what the new needs of the industry are given everything that's been shifting so dramatically over the last couple of years, and then what we're going to be doing to fill those needs, therefore continuing our relevance to the industry and people's desire to support us and to contribute. This is the Box Office Podcast. I am Daniel Aria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the only publication in North America exclusively dedicated to covering theatrical exhibition. Joined here today by our co-hosts, Rebecca Polly, the deputy editor of Box Office Pro, and Sean Robbins, the chief analyst here at Box Office Pro. We've got uh, another great episode this week. We have Heather Morgan, the vice president of content and marketing at Harkins Theaters, who is the first female president of the Will Rogers Motion Pictures Pioneers Foundation, joining us as a guest. And of course, a complete recap of the Thanksgiving box office and some insights on what we can expect from Spider-Man No Way Home. But before we start, Rebecca, could you share the word from this week's sponsor? Yes, this week's sponsor is the box office company. Rebuild your audience and maximize sales with Boost e-commerce products and services from the box office company. In addition to Showtime's marketing, we will boost your customer engagement and online sales through SEO, email marketing, websites, mobile apps, and online ticketing solutions using the latest technology, all designed exclusively for cinema. Contact sales at boxoffice.com or search Boost My Cinema for more information. Boost from the box office company, effective e-commerce for cinemas. It's been a great week for exhibitors this week with the pre-sales for Spider-Man No Way Home launching on Monday. We've got a lot of great initiatives. Rebecca, including, uh, we have to say this, a banner start uh, for the Boost Ticketing Division, the e-commerce site of the box office company, which broke its sales record on Monday. Yeah, actually, Daniel, that uh, Monday sales record beats out every actual Friday and Saturday uh, bunch of sales that has come in since September, beat that number uh, by over 60%. And definitely Spider-Man No Way Home, easily the most anticipated film of the year. We even saw a poll from one of the leading exhibitors here in North America, Marcus Theaters, polling its customers, polling the people that have been coming through the doors in the last couple of months, and the customers confirming this is the movie they've most been looking forward to since cinemas reopened. We look at some of those uh, initiatives that other major circuits have been doing to try to get some of that advanced ticketing attention to go to them. AMC Theaters, the number one circuit in the country, offering one of these NFTs to either an AMC Stubbs member or an Investor Connect member that buys an opening day ticket on December 16, to watch this movie, that run is limited to 86,000. I'm sure they're going to go really fast. That's an example of what some of these circuits are doing to advertise and promote advanced ticketing on their own pages. It's great to see our colleagues at the box office company being able to report that other circuits have had similar luck with this title now that pre-sales are open. And that leads us in, Sean, we're seeing these early pre-sales figures come in. How are things looking like on a forecasting perspective for this title? Well, I think this is probably the first time in two years where, where it seems like everything is going right for a movie 
in in terms of reaching those pre-pandemic kind of just monster box office numbers. We've seen some good numbers this year. We've we've all been very encouraged by the progress we've seen. But this is this has been the movie that's been circled on the calendar for a very long time. And I think these pre-sales really suggest that it's living up to that hype. Our range before pre-sales began, worst case scenario, we were we were thinking over 130 million, potentially upwards of a debut over 180 million at the domestic box office on its first weekend. I, I think once we get some time to dive into the data a little bit, a little bit more over the next few days and certainly see how this momentum translates over the next few weeks, uh, that range could go up. We'll see where it's at, but at the very least, there is nothing but good news here. Now, Sean, could I ask you, does the way in which you uh, integrate ticketing pre-sales into your forecasting predictions, is that different at all now than it was pre-pandemic. I'm just thinking back to, I believe it was No Time to Die, where it had incredibly strong um, pre-sales and then the opening weekend domestic gross, well, by no means a disappointment, didn't necessarily live up to where those pre-sales numbers, you know, looked like they were going to be pushing the movie. Is that, uh, could that be something that happens with Spider-Man here? Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely something to look at. And it's a great question to ask because we're really seeing consumer habits evolve on the fly here at this point because it, it's the biggest challenge I think so far in comparing any movie coming out right now versus even two years ago is that we're seeing a much stronger influx of of pre-sales and online sales. And that's that's been expedited by the pandemic itself. So James Bond was a great example to look at because it was naturally going to appeal to an older male audience that's its core uh, which are usually some of the most you know immediate ticket buyers when it comes to Star Wars and Marvel franchises. We didn't really expect that to happen with James Bond, so it was a little surprising that it did happen, but it's an early sign that maybe the pandemic has changed the way uh, consumers are buying tickets. That could apply to Spider-Man. However, we've seen a few Marvel movies now open this year. Uh, we have more metrics to look at than we did with James Bond necessarily. So Spider-Man No Way Home is coming out here on December 17th, previews on the 16th. Uh, a lot of excitement for this title. We also have to look at what the impact of a big movie does for everything else on the market. Sean, from that perspective, what does Spider-Man No Way Home represent for holiday movie going? This is really the potential next inflection point to me. And we look back at the stages we've we've said that about over the course of this year. You know, it began with Godzilla versus Kong and that led into a quiet place. Then we had Shang-Chi leading to a very strong fall by the time October arrived. I think this is the next tier of that with Spider-Man because we'll have The Matrix coming out. We'll have Sing 2 coming out, which is doing really well in its pre-sales for advanced screenings. And once we get into the new year, there will be a little bit of a break, as there usually is. But there, there are actually quite a few films with commercial potential opening by the time we hit February and especially March and onward. So this is really that momentum kick that could send us even closer to the pre-pandemic levels. It will still take time to get there. And of course, we have to be very cognizant of, of what's going on with news about COVID variants right now. But all things being equal and just assuming things uh, don't really significantly affect consumer confidence anytime soon in the next few weeks. This is this is that next level that we're about to take, I think, at the box office. Well, that's great to hear. And of course, that's coming off of momentum from uh, the Thanksgiving box office, which uh, isn't back to normal, but does represent a massive improvement to where we were in 2020. Of course, I think it's a little premature, as you say, Sean, to start comparing where we are today to 2019 as much as we'd like to. We have to. We absolutely have to look at this 
as a recovery as where we are compared to 2020. In that regard, Rebecca, can you go over those macro figures from the Thanksgiving box office last weekend? Yeah, you know, as you said, there's there's nothing really cut and dry to say, oh, we're doing great, oh, we're doing horribly. Everything is is relative. But I'm gonna um, embrace my my inner optimist and say, I think the fact that Thanksgiving weekend over that five days span in 2021 was 600% over box office the same period in 2020. Obviously, 2020, we're, we're smack dab in the middle of COVID and the films weren't necessarily there. But you know what? I will still take that 600% improvement from this time last year. Meanwhile, if you compare uh, this most recent Thanksgiving weekend to 2019, we are still at 46% below where we were pre-pandemic. But again, Daniel, uh, like you said, that that's not necessarily something that's unexpected. Nobody, nobody expected, uh, expected us to be up to 2019 levels quite yet. But of course, um, we did have Encanto leading the pack with 40 million over the five-day period from just under 4,000 screens. Um, it, it's a good weekend for family films with Cinemark, the third largest exhibitor in North America, reporting that Thanksgiving weekend was their biggest weekend of ticket sales for families. And uh, yeah, Daniel, what are we looking at internationally in terms of Encanto? Because some of these Disney animation titles can, can uh, really make bank in some of these international markets. That's right, Rebecca, especially in Latin America. And actually, I have to say it, I was uh, back for the first time since 2019 in my hometown in Mexico. And I was able to take my parents to the movies for the first time uh, in the pandemic. It was our first experience back. We went to a cinema that had been closed until mid-February of 2021 on a Saturday night full of people buzzing, people buying concessions, people going to the movies. It was really heartening to see a full movie theater in Mexico doing so well after such a difficult period. Of course, this was a holiday weekend in the United States, in the rest of the world. It wasn't. It was a regular, uh, you know, three-day frame. But considering that, Encanto and House of Gucci hit the market in a number of international territories, including Mexico. For Encanto's case, we had $29.3 million from a three-day frame across 47 markets. It was the second biggest opening weekend of all time for an animated title in Colombia, where this movie Encanto is set, with a $2.6 million haul just behind Toy Story 4. So great figures for this movie in Colombia, and it actually represented the biggest opening weekend for an animated title during the pandemic across several markets. The top international players as of now are France with 3.5 million, the aforementioned Colombia with 2.6, the UK with 2.4, South Korea with 2.2, and Italy with 2.1 million, delivering a global opening weekend for the title of 69.6 million. Sean, it looks like these are solid numbers domestically, solid numbers overseas, not blockbuster numbers. What does this tell us about family audiences coming back to the movies right now? Well, I think the fact that this was a Disney movie, only available in theaters, made all the difference in the world. Uh, we looked. We look on the domestic front. We 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 saw a number of these animated films. A lot of them hybrid releases, consistently opening between ten to fifteen to twenty million tops. Uh, and Encanto has has gone way past that, obviously, and it helped to have that Disney branding. But this was still an original film. This was not 
This was not Wreck-It Ralph 2 or Frozen 2. And it was also competing against Ghostbusters Afterlife, which had a really good hold this weekend and is also drawing in some of the family audience. So between the two of them, and especially with Encanto being that Disney brand and, and, and pulling in parents with, with kids who have just started to be able to get vaccinated between the ages of 5 and 11, uh, this really showed how important that development was on, on the pandemic side of things. And in terms of where we could really see things go over the holidays with, like I mentioned earlier, seeing two coming out close to Christmas, uh, I think this really bodes well for, for what that could do. Sean, as you mentioned, Ghostbusters Afterlife had a really solid second weekend drop of only 44%, uh, bringing its estimated three-day total over the weekend to $24.5 million on around 4,300 screens, putting it in second place. Overseas, it has earned $28 million from 40 markets, bringing its global cum at this point to $115.75 million. Uh, meanwhile, new release House of Gucci came in third with $22 million from uh, around 3,500 screens. Uh, Sean, I know this is one that, that we were kind of uncertain as to where this would, would land financially, given the precedent of, you know, it's a long Ridley Scott film exclusively in theaters. Um, we just had one of those a few months ago in The Last Duel, and, and that did not do well. And uh, Sean, you know, internationally speaking, there was actually a really interesting statistic about House of Gucci's um, opening weekend cum, specifically in the UK market. Yeah, the film actually beat out Disney's Encanto for the top spot at the UK box office with $3.4 million this weekend. And I, I think probably a lot of that is attributable to the fact that it's a Ridley Scott film with a great ensemble cast. Uh, but, you know, it just, this kind of underlines the, the cultural differences between certain markets sometimes, even between markets that are often similar, like the UK and domestic. Uh, yeah, absolutely. If we look at that uh, overseas launch that a title like this had, that 3.4 million is over a quarter of its 12.8 million debut from 40 markets internationally, giving the movie a $34 million head start. That's 10% of its global gross, guys, coming from the UK's opening weekend alone. Uh, a great start in the United Kingdom, where we actually saw October's box office exceed its 2019 figures, UK a little bit further ahead than other markets right now during the pandemic. Uh, Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City opened on the low expectations with 8.8 .8 million from around 2,800 screens, bringing that new release exclusive to theaters um, in fifth place in the box office. Uh, Sean, what do you think? It's a cash cow. And, you know, there are plenty of those out there in the, in the industry. It doesn't cost $200 million to make, so it doesn't have to make $200 million box office to be successful. Uh, and we we kind of discussed, I think, on the previous podcast, this was a franchise. It's been around for 20 years. It's being rebooted now. It's seen diminished returns. This was really not shocking at all. And it was going up against a Ghostbusters and a Marvel movie over a holiday weekend. It just, it was really in an interesting position. And by the time it opened it, it was very clear it was going to come in third among the openers. Yeah. And internationally, where this franchise has usually had uh, good success over the years, we see a little bit of a slower start, 5.4 million from 15 markets, with uh, top openers being France with 875,000, Russia with 740,000, and Taiwan with 620,000. Still a number of international territories on the agenda for Resident Evil. Welcome to Raccoon City. Uh, so we will be tracking that over on our website, boxofficepro.com. And to close up our weekend recap here of the box office, we do have to mention on the specialty side, Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza setting the best platform debut of the pandemic with a 345,000 
take from only four screens. That's an $86,289 per screen average, guys. A massive number. Those four locations where it opened were New York City and Los Angeles, each of them in those big auditoriums, a, a nice winter season 70 millimeter print hitting moviegoers in these markets. If we look at that audience demographics of the people that showed up, 72% of the audience across those four locations in New York City and LA were between the ages of 18 and 34. Fantastic figures from young adults here going to the movies in these two markets to see Liquor's Pizza on its opening weekend. This film, along with many others that came out last weekend on the specialty market, are going to be expanding in the coming weeks. It's great to see the specialty market showing signs of life with these platform releases. And that's something, of course, that this week's guest, Heather Morgan, the Vice President of Content and Marketing at Harkins Theaters, looking over programming or one of the biggest circuits in the nation is looking at on a week-to-week -week basis, how can I get diverse titles to the screen? She's also the new president of the Will Rogers Motion Pictures Pioneers Foundation starting in 2022. Rebecca, you just had this interview a couple days back. What can you share from it? Uh, it was a really great interview, uh, wide ranging about her own personal history and then uh, her role with Will Rogers and the direction that this incredibly important charity is going to take uh, during her tenure. Heather, thank you so much for joining us today. Obviously, Will Rogers, you know, has been helping people for 85 years, but over the past two years, oh my gosh, the work that you guys have done with the Pioneers Assistance Fund has just been truly phenomenal. And I'm really excited to, to have you on the podcast to kind of talk about the direction where Real Rogers goes from here. Well, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here, especially today. Today's Giving Tuesday. So I can't think of a better day for you and I to be talking than, than today. Yeah, and uh, to that effect, it won't be Giving Tuesday uh, when our when our listeners are listening to this, but please do go to uh, wrpioneers.org slash donate in the, in the spirit of Giving Tuesday. We're going to keep that spirit going a little longer. Perfect. So we all know that uh, during COVID over these last two years, Will Rogers has, has, I think it's fair to say, had a pretty singular purpose, which is uh, the Pioneers Assistance Fund, the emergency grants, uh, really getting much needed grants out to people in the cinema industry. Yes. Luckily, now we are well into the recovery process. Exhibitors, vendors, everyone is, has taken these last few years to kind of reassess how they're going to operate moving forward. What does that look like for Will Rogers, which you have so many other things going on in Will Rogers besides just the Pioneers Assistance Fund. Yes. So the Will Rogers Motion Picture Pioneers Foundation, there are a number of things that we do. So for example, our roots are centered in pulmonary health and research. So, you know, that actually was something that was reignited. The necessity for it became ever more prominent during COVID because, you know, COVID is a lung issue. So we we're actively involved in lung health. And then we also have our Brave Beginnings, which is, um, you know, buying uh, NICU equipment for premature babies so that they can develop. So when babies are born prematurely, often hospitals are short on these special equipment units that the babies need to go in while you're waiting for their, you know, internal organs to develop, in particular their lungs. And so we have a heavy presence there. But the Pioneer Assistance Fund, which is a fund that is used to support members of the industry when they are going through times of financial difficulty resulting from a number of causes, 
COVID and everything that did to ravage our industry and shutter theaters and people, you know, being furloughed, that really thrust the Pioneer Assistance Fund into the limelight and increased people's awareness of it. Many people in this industry were not aware of the Pioneer Assistance Fund or of Will Rogers at all. You had that partnership with Lionsgate where you have Jamie Lee Curtis, of, of all people, on, on YouTube talking up Will Rogers and the great work that it does. I mean, that was just yes. awesome to see. That was, yes. And that really helped us, you know, get the word out and NATO donated a significant amount of money. And so did Sony and so did Cinemark. And we had a number of partners in the industry step up to donate during that time and also to raise awareness, letting people know that they could come and apply for grants and financial assistance. And we helped people stay in their homes. We helped them buy groceries, keep the lights on you know, just to try to bridge the gap during financial difficulty. So the everyone at the organization is incredibly proud of the work that we did and incredibly grateful for all the partners that helped us do that work during that time. So, I mean, with with things like Brave Beginnings, with, with, the, with the pulmonary research, what place will that have in, in Will Rogers moving forward? Because I know, like, you haven't been able to hold the big annual Will Rogers fundraising dinner. Like, I imagine a lot of, a lot of fundraising that would have come from exhibitors. How are things going to look moving forward for you? Or are, are things going to change at all? Yeah, I think they will. That's actually a great question. And we've actually been talking a lot about that. So so as you know, I'm taking over the presidency of Will Rogers starting January 1st of this upcoming year in 2022. And we're putting together the executive board that is going to be partnering with me to navigate the future direction and initiatives for the charity. So no final decisions are going to be made until that board gets firmly in place and has a chance to meet and provide input and brainstorm. But we do know that the direction of the charity is going to shift somewhat going forward, specifically because the needs of our industry are shifting. And so are people's financial positions and their ability to give to charity. So when people sense a great need, they become much more generous. And so, you know, during COVID, when everything was happening to the theaters and that was all in the press, that generated, I think, a lot of people's goodwill and their desire to contribute to the industry and the people who were struggling. But to your point, now as the story around the industry, thankfully, is shifting toward one of recovery that also makes people feel like there's a less urgent need to give, yet the need is still there. And so we're going to be talking going forward about not only how we adapt as a charity. So are the things that we've been focused on traditionally still relevant for the industry going forward? And what new needs does the industry and all the members that make it up, what what needs do they have that maybe we haven't been meeting or that no one is currently meeting? I think any successful charity has a very clear mission statement, which says, this is the problem that exists, this is who we are, and this is what we are doing to solve that problem. So we're going to start back with step one to reassess what the new needs of the industry are given everything that's been shifting so dramatically over the last couple of years, and then what we're going to be doing to fill those needs, therefore continuing our relevance to the industry and people's desire to support us and to contribute. What sort of things are, are kind of on your radar at this point in terms of what the industry needs? Are, are we looking at like mentorship programs or, or, or what kind of what kind of things? We have a million ideas. Um, <laughs> right. There's there's too much to do. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. But and, and that is usually our fault is or where we're more I falter is we're trying to do too much at once. But yes, to narrow down some of the more immediate needs. So the Pioneer Assistance Fund, you know, often the people and no one knows this better than the social workers who work on behalf of uh, 
of the people who call the Pioneer Assistance Fund for assistance. But most of the people who need emergency financial assistance because they've encountered an unexpected hardship, it's usually the result of a pattern of spending or saving or financial management that hasn't served them well up to a point. And therefore, when you have this emergency situation, you don't have the money available to cover it. So I think financial literacy is a huge thing that our industry needs. And it really runs the gamut because we have people working in our industry that are in their senior and twilight years. And then we have a large percentage of our employees in the industry that are, you know, it's their first job or one of their first jobs. And then we have people in between. So we really need, I think, financial literacy and money management education for people at all phases of their careers so that they understand how to manage whatever amount of money they're making. They understand how to try to live within their needs and manage it in such a way that they don't have that stress of barely being able to make ends meet. And, you know, our, our industry is going through a tremendous period of change right now, and it will continue to do so. And that means that we need the strongest leaders available to help us navigate that change and to usher in the new wave of industry trends in the decades to come. So to your point, yes, mentorship programs. Do we have people who are ready to take those next steps in their careers? And do they understand emotional intelligence and how important that is in the workplace? And do they understand how to you know, provide customer service that needs to be representative of the industry that we're trying to foster and grow. And there's a number of things that we think the industry needs, but we're also going to be reaching out to the people in our industry, in all of the companies um, that we work with on both the exhibition and distribution and vendor sides to see what they feel like their needs are, not only as a company, but also for their workforce and how they would like to see us help with that, because having their input is going to be crucial to determining how we move forward. I mean, as as the president of uh, of Will Rogers over this next two year term, you're going to be one of those leaders who are who are helping to kind of drive the industry in the right direction. Um, given that, I'd like to know a little bit about your background with volunteering, with charitable work, with nonprofits, anything like that. Sure. So I've been so my background um, in charitable work has actually been relatively recent, at least on any kind of notable scale. So two years ago, I joined the Will Rogers Executive Board as a VP. Um, and in that role, I've been working for the last two years to help steer and lead and guide the charity through this this difficult COVID phase. Um, but prior to that, my charitable involvement was really you know, kind of one-off arranging volunteer activities with my family or in college. If Just generally being a charitable person. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. And I think that's, so to your point about where that came from, I think it's motivated by the fact that I'm from, I grew up in Soldier, Kansas, which is a tiny town in the Midwest. The population is around 80 people. And I think just when you grow up in a town that small, you are naturally instilled with this sense of helping those around you because there aren't very many people around and nobody has very much. Everybody partners together to share what they have and to take care of the needs of the people in their community and around them. So there is no us versus them. It's just all us. And so how are we going to get through, you know, whatever situation it is? So nobody's a stranger. Everybody's a friend. Everybody's a neighbor. And so I think when you grow up in an environment like that, you you just tend to grow up with this very naturally protective, giving heart where you want to ensure that the people around you 
have what they need and are being well cared for and you're motivated to do whatever you can to to facilitate that. So that's one of the reasons why I'm so thrilled to have this Will Rogers leadership position is because it puts me in an even greater position to be able to try to help and care for those around me. 80 people in in, in Soldier growing up. Where was your closest movie theater? Um, the nearest theater was in Seneca, Kansas, which is about 25 to 30 miles from Soldier. I think it might have been the Seneca Twin, although I can't I can't be certain about the name, but it was, you know, I, I was a another tiny small town theater. And no, we didn't go often, not only because it was 25 miles away, but the average, you know, the average income, the average household income around where I grew up is somewhere between twenty-five to fifty thousand dollars a year. And so when that's the economic position of everyone in the community, you understand that doing things like going out to the movie theater or going out to dinner, it's very special. It's not something you get to do very often. And when you do get to pay, I don't know, at the time, probably six or seven dollars for a movie ticket per person in your family, and then buy concessions when you get there, it's a it's a big deal and it's meant to be very special. And so we didn't get to we didn't grow up going to the theater very often, nor did any of my friends, but whenever we did go, it was you know, a momentous occasion. It was something to be celebrated that we got just, you know, incredibly excited about. It seems like you'd be like very, very sensitive to, to that now as to the the sacredness of the space. Like the, the experience for the guests needs to be right because this is a very special experience for them. It, you're right. That is the mentality. I am, I am still and will always be pretty frugal and a, a thrifter and a saver. And, you know, it's like, um, you know, my dad says about my family, we never found a penny that didn't have a place. And it's just, you, you grow up being very economically conscious. And so I, even if other people are not operating with that same mentality, I I tend to assume that they are. And so that's why both at, at my time at AMC and at my time at Harkins, I am very honored to be in a position where I can have a role in other people's movie going experience, whether it's on the operation side or the film side and putting, putting content on screen that gets people excited. And the reason why is because every time, you know, people, especially now and during the COVID time, that really brought me back home from a mentality standpoint. People were furloughed, they were losing their jobs entirely, or they had their incomes cut all across the country and all across industries, not just in ours. And so when people would come to see us at the theater, I understood that they were spending some of their very hard-earned, very valuable and very short discretionary income with us. And therefore, I'm committed to showing them something that gives them you know, an experience that they feel good about where they, you know, and you're right, everything, everything has to be good. I remember how disappointing it was growing up. If we, if we drove all that way and spent all that money and, you know, the movie was terrible or the people in the auditorium were ruining it, or, you know, if there was a rip in the screen or, you know, if there was anything that took away from the experience, you really felt that because you had put a lot of skin in the game from the, you know, the money that you spent. So I still hold the movie going experience very, very safe. Sacred, not just for myself, but on behalf of everyone that steps into our theater doors. And I, I don't take that for granted and I'm very protective of it. So we always try to deliver the, the very best that we can. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, we talk so much about amenities in the sense of uh, the biggest possible screen, the most comfortable recliners, the, the best food menu, but the fundamentals are the things that are fundamental. Um, is, is your staff well-trained to be to be nice and friendly? Are they enforcing no talking rules? Like just the little day-to-day -day operational things. I think that you're exactly right. You can't get distracted. I mean, there's, there's 
tremendous potential financial upside to chasing all of the bells and whistles, the premium large formats and the bars and the in, you know, in auditorium dining and service. Yeah, that's all, that's all value add, no doubt about it. But you cannot lose sight of your table stakes. I mean, it's like Simon Sinek says, you have to start with why. You have to, you know, why are we doing what we do? Why is what we are doing important? Who are we doing it for? And as long as you keep those critical questions at the center of all of your strategic decisions, then you're going to stay on the right course. And I think that is one of the, that's one of the things that we're going to continue to do at Will Rogers. We're going to run our charity like, you know, we run a business. We, we keep our why focused at the center of everything that we're doing and we stay committed to it. And, and that's going to keep us on the right track. I was going to say, it sounds like a perfect fit that you, that you would be the, the next president of Will Rogers and the first female president in its 85-year uh, history, which it's uh, it, it took a while, but I'm, I'm glad, <laughs> glad we hit that milestone. So congratulations am, on that. I am too. Thank you. That's what most people, after, I, after the announcement came out about me being the first female president, so many people reached out with, congratulations, that's incredible, that's fantastic, and finally... And I said, yes, that's, that tends to be anytime an advancement comes for, you know, our gender or any other minority group, usually people's reaction is, I wonder why that took so long, but we're so glad that it's here. Earlier uh, in 2020, I believe, we uh, we spoke with Todd Vredenberg and Christina Bloomer of Will Rogers, and, and they spoke about one of the things that is um, kind of upcoming for Will Rogers is, is related to to marketing, to kind of the operations, the nuts and bolts of of not why you're getting people to donate, but how getting the message out there. Uh, you know, could, could you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, like you said, now that the need is not so urgent, people, it's, it's maybe kind of going to be out of sight, out of mind. H- how do you combat that? Yes, that's a that's an excellent point. Any charity, just like any business, you need effective marketing. So as I was talking about earlier, where we really need to start with why, why we're doing what we do. This is the problem we're trying to solve. This is who we are. And this is what we're doing about that problem. We're going to keep our why focused at the center of everything we do. And then there are a couple of other critical pieces that add to that. The first of which is marketing our charity. So making people aware that we exist, who we are, and what we're doing. Because people can't support us. They can't be evangelists for us. They can't talk about us and share information or utilize our services or contribute to our organization if they don't know about us and that we exist. So continuing to enhance our marketing efforts and expand our reach and our email database and figuring out how to reach a larger number of people in the industry to make them aware of what we're doing and how. And then the second piece of that is also making giving as simple as possible. So once you hear about an organization and once they've motivated you to donate to them, it also needs to be a pretty seamless and hurdle-free or adaptive process. And again, with people having less discretionary income all the time that they can afford to donate to various causes, you really need to not make it overly difficult for them and you need to give them options if they want to support. So, you know, in addition to being able to just accept straight donations through the website, like we always have been, if people want to donate a lump sum, we have a program now that it's roundup giving. So you can, and it's in place now where you can select a credit card and you can set a monthly maximum amount that you want 
to donate and then it'll round up all of your purchases to the nearest dollar. So if you spend $25 and one penny in a store, for example, on a certain credit card and you've designated that card for roundup, it'll donate 99 cents to Will Rogers. And you can say, I want to donate a, a maximum of $20 a month or $50 a month. And then once you've hit your maximum, it'll stop. You can donate stocks and mutual funds. You can donate vehicles. We'll take motorcycles and boats and all kinds of things. So there are, you know, I think it's it's not just about finding a strong why that compels people and letting them know what your why is and why they should support you, but also just making it very convenient for them to do so and trying to meet people where they are so that if they want to contribute, you can offer them a number of ways to do that. So that's going to looking for increasing ways for us to be flexible in terms of what, how we can let people get involved and donate. That is going to be an additional focus for us going forward as well. Thanks so much, Heather, for, for speaking with us today. Um, anyone listening, you can visit wrpioneers.org to find out about all these different ways that you can donate to Will Rogers, whether that's a roundup program or working through Amazon. Uh, and on that website, also, you can sign up to their email newsletter to find out more about well, what's going down Will Rogers uh, 2022 and beyond. Heather, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Rebecca. And that was Heather Morgan from Harkins Theaters and the upcoming president of the Will Rogers Motion Pictures Pioneers Foundation. She'll be beginning her tenure there on January 1st. Speaking to our Rebecca Pauly here on the Box Office Podcast, Rebecca, Heather, Sean, thank you very much for joining us this week. And to our listeners, don't forget to tune in next week on Thursday for another new episode of our podcast. The Box Office Podcast is produced in collaboration between Box Office Pro, The Box Office Company, and Record Edit Podcast. New episodes drop every Thursday. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us if you like what we're doing each week. Mm -hmm.